Hi, I'm Fraser Rice, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Fraser Rice Podcast. By day, I'm a private banker where I've met many cool and fascinating people who contribute to modern urban life. This podcast will explore my curiosity with the artists, entrepreneurs, commentators, and tastemakers that affect the culture of New York City and beyond. And with that, let's dive into today's conversation. In this episode, we welcome Terrence P. McCauley. Terrence is a crime fiction writer and a proud native of the Bronx. His acclaimed first thriller, Sympathy for the Devil, will be published by Polis Books in July. Polis is also republishing Terrence's first two award-winning crime novels set in 1930 New York City, Prohibition and Slow Burn. In 2008, Terrence won the True TV Search for the Next Great Crime Writer contest, and in 2014, he won three New Pulp Awards for Best Short Story, Best Novel, and Best Author. Welcome aboard, Terrence. Thank you, my friend. Now, Sympathy for the Devil is your fourth book. It's a bit of a departure from your crime work and thrusts you into the Jason Bourne and Mac Bolan world. And where did you get the idea? The reason why I chose to tell Sympathy for the Devil the way I did was because I had some frustrations with some of the other books that I've seen in that genre. A lot of them tend to focus on the spy who was thrown out or the ex-seal that's looking to get back in. And I wanted to tell a different type of story. And that's why I focused on creating a completely different intelligence organization that operates within the same framework of, let's say, the CIA or the NSA, but isn't bound by the same rules that everybody understands, uh, that those kinds of organizations to operate in. That way, I had a lot more creative uh, space in which to build my own world and also make it relatable to the reader. So what kinds of thrillers did you use as reference or which ones did you really like and uh, look back on as either source material or points of reference used in your book? A lot of the ones that I liked are the classics. I love uh, elements of John Lacari, for example, and uh, as we spoke earlier, he has a great talent, but some of his books can be very hard to get through. They're beautifully written, but to read them as a whole, they're laborious. I wanted to do something that was a little bit more focused on action, but not obsessed with it like the Mac Bolan books. So right. I love the uh, stories that uh, Clancy tells, for example, which have plenty of action, but his later work can get laden down with too many acronyms and too much spycraft. All of my stories are usually character-driven, and I didn't want Sympathy for the Devil to be any different than that. I really like Clancy's use of technology to help drive the story, but I agree with you. It, it can weigh things down and, and just trip the story up. How did you avoid that? I focused on character with characters doing a lot of really cool things with some good technology, what I like to refer to as near technology. I talk about how they can use their advanced cell phone to scan a car get the VIN number, and track it remotely that way. There may be some kind of technology that allows that to happen. I don't know if it does, but what I do is use the reader's frame of reference with technology they use every day and amp it up a little bit. So that way I don't get too involved in techno-speak like some of Clancy's later novels do, but at the same time I make it interesting and cool so that maybe the reader will say, oh, that's something I can believe in even if I don't know that it exists. When did you know you were really bitten by the writing bug? Oh, well, right after I got out of college, I always had it in the back of my head that I wanted to write something, um, and I wanted to write some kind of a novel. At first, I thought it was going to be about politics, but as I got 
further away from college and more exposed to life in my 20s and 30s, I just realized people like politics, but they don't necessarily like to read about it. And trying to make it fun and interesting is really difficult. Uh, <laughs> so what I did was uh, I was fortunate enough to focus in on the uh, Prohibition era. I had grown up listening to my grandmother tell stories about what it was like to raise a family back then in the 1920s and 30s. And I realized that I could take my love of politics and my love of storytelling and try to tell a story about that era in New York City's history. And that's where the book Prohibition was born. I remember when you first showed me Prohibition and I looked at it and we've known each other a long time and I read it and I was stunned at how intricate the descriptions of the period were. The, the characters were great. I really enjoyed it and I was taken by surprise. I didn't know you had that talent in you. It was really cool. Take us through your writing process a little bit. You hear about authors who get up in the morning and write for two hours before you go to work. Do you have any set routines or uh, how, do you, how do you make it go and how do you get from A to Z in terms of writing a novel? It seems so daunting for many people. It can be. Um, for me, I follow the old axiom, I think, that Neil Gaiman said, which is you sit in front of the typewriter or the computer and you put one word in front of the other until it's done. And it's that easy and it's just that hard. Uh, for me, and I hear this from a lot of people who want to write, but they say they don't have the time. Personally, I make the time. I do it on my iPhone on my way into work. There's the notes application. I'll type away at that. If I have my iPad, I'll type away at that as well. And then I spend the weekends when I don't have the chores to take care of. I will spend the weekend on the porch doing that or up in my private writing area, taking all the things I worked on that week and pulling it together into one cohesive area. It also ha happens to help that I don't have any hobbies. Um, I don't <laughs> golf. Um, you know, I smoke cigars occasionally, and I write all weekend. So it helps that I, I can devote my time to my craft that way. So for the book writing process, how long does it take? For Prohibition, for example, it took me two years. And for Sympathy for the Devil, my latest one, it took me six weeks. Um, it all depends on what I'm working on and the nature of it. Like for Prohibition, I did a lot of stopping and starting because of the research. Right. Um, because I wanted to make sure I didn't just rehash what we've seen in uh, Public Enemy or Little Caesar. I actually wanted to get a feel for the era. For Sympathy for the Devil, I had it gesticulating in my mind by quite a bit because of all the Edward Snowden stuff that was going on and right. all of the various scandals with the NSA and CIA and spying and things like that. So for that, that was a little more top of mind. So it took me not as long to write that one. Um, so for me, it was six weeks for the first draft and probably three months total for the entire thing to be done. It seems doable. It's just a function of putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, exactly right. It's that and it's also having a passion for it. I right. know that in everything I've ever written, there's always been a dull point where I say, I just wish it was over or I can't stand this scene or I'm sick of these characters. A lot of people give up there. But for me, the secret is powering through that for the sake of the story and the overall plot. To get back to the technical aspects a little bit, how do you research the gadgetry and the uh, electronics and things like that that go into Sympathy for the Devil? Uh, did you have a group of people that you leaned on to make sure that the references worked and, and were accurate? I did a lot of uh, research in the newspapers, um, reading about some of the experimental stuff that you might read on Drudge or on other uh, places where they say, Big Brother is going to be watching us and here's how. Um, and I also 
focused on iPads and cell phones and known technology and just tried to jazz them up a little bit, um, like I said earlier, with near technology, where I take a logical leap where you don't have to – the reader wouldn't have to necessarily spend a lot of time wondering whether or not this was possible. Like I have the uh, main character use a souped-up cell phone that's tied in to a entire private closed network that has access to almost every other network on the planet. Now, a couple of years ago, smartphone technology like that might have been difficult for people to grasp. But these days, I'm hoping that they'll be able to make the leap. And so far, when people have read the book, they've the technology hasn't bothered them at all. They actually think it's kind of cool. Well, it's, it seems like it, it, it harkens back to Blade Runner in some ways. You look back at that movie in 1982 and a lot of it seemed pretty fantastic and then all of a sudden a lot of the concepts that took place in that movie seem to have come true and uh, hopefully some of that happens in yours. Or maybe not. If, uh, if we're getting spied <laughs> on and looked at and uh, otherwise being tracked by a bunch of uh, erstwhile uh, intelligence organizations, maybe we don't want that. Exactly right. And also what I uh, with the technology, I didn't want it to distract from the main focus of the book. So I wanted to make sure that it added to the book but didn't serve as a distraction at all. So one of the really cool things about Prohibition, your 1930s era book, was the just vivid descriptions of the New York neighborhoods, which I really liked. It just for a New Yorker, it was really nice to be able to visualize what was going on and the vernacular and that really worked. And you go into a lot of detail in the New York neighborhoods that our hero James Hicks navigates. Um, what makes you so good at observing these details? I grew up in a family full of storytellers. I had uh, the good fortune of having my grandmother, like I mentioned earlier. She had a very interesting life, and she had a lot of great stories to tell. I also had two uncles who were Catholic priests in New York City who were uh, in inner-city parishes. And one of my uncles was actually the uh, prison chaplain in the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. Oh, my, so, my hometown. Know it real well. <laughs> Not from personal experience, thankfully. Thankfully, yeah. And uh, don't pick up any hitchhikers along the way, <laughs> especially these days. Uh, but uh, so at, uh, And also I had an aunt who was a nun who was also a uh, high school principal. So on the holidays, I used to have an awful lot of great stories being told around me. And I was young, so I didn't have anything to contribute at the time. So I became a good listener. And uh, that has helped me become a uh, the type of writer who pays attention to detail without being absorbed by it. And that helped me with prohibition. I could do the research and instead of sticking in something cute for the sake of it because I uncovered it in my research, I knew what I could put in there that would add to the story and the plot. Wait, that leads into my next question, which is really how do you write dialogue? Prohibition especially has a lot of 1930s vernacular. Uh, you have to go back to James Cagney movies and things like that to really get an idea of how people spoke, I suppose. I, I don't know. But when I read the book, it really – came out and felt authentic to me. Does that just pop into your head? Uh, do you read and watch old movies to make sure that the cadence and vernacular works? Or what other methods do you use to make that work in prose? Well, for uh, Prohibition, I would read a lot of the uh, pulp stories that came out at that time and make sure I took advantage of what I knew worked and what didn't work. I also listened to the uh, – watched the movies and I also – Remembered a lot of the terms my parents, my mother and my grandfather and grandmother would use and uh, tried to add that cadence into the dialogue for Prohibition. 
But the the problem with using some of the dialogue in uh, James Cagney movies, for example, a lot of it wasn't accurate. And especially in a lot of the Hammett stories, he would use something he thought meant one thing, like the term gunsel, and it means something completely different. For me, it was important to see where those landmines were and to use them judiciously. Because back then, people still talk the way they normally do now. It's just that they had a little bit more of a colorful phrasing. Right. Um, but it wasn't necessarily as heightened as you hear in the movies from the 30s or whatnot, because they were doing that for uh, theatrical purpose. For Sympathy for the Devil, it was a departure for me because it takes place in modern day. So I had the cadence down and the uh, the way normal people speak. Um, I didn't want it to have the same kind of clipped element like 24 has or some Aaron Sorkin movies have because no one sounds like that. People, even in, um, in, in as we know, in government, they aren't always over-talking each other and it's not that rapid-fire pace that you see in the West Wing. People do have conversations. Or sometimes they can't speak at all. Or sometimes they can't <laughs> speak at all or sometimes or, you'd have to be bleeping them out quite a bit if it was a family program, as we know. Um, we, we have plenty of friends <laughs> that uh, would, would cause the censor button to get hit a lot. Oh, yeah. That would get worn out in five seconds. But uh, for Sympathy for the Devil, I try to uh, have people speak naturally um, the way the reader could relate to and uh, also advance the plot. That's always the main focus. So getting back to Prohibition quickly, uh, it really puts dirty, conflicted characters like Xboxer Terry Quinn up against the crime boss Archie Doyle in grimy old-time New York. Where did you get the idea to, to get into that frame of reference? And how did you get the descriptions and atmosphere to be accurate and immediate? Is there anything in your background we should know about? <laughs> Other than a love of politics, no. There's nothing in my background that would make me uh, more likely to do that. But I will say I the research into that era was fascinating and especially about how political it was. And when I did my research for Prohibition, it was uh, to, to find out how entrenched Tammany Hall was. Now it's become more of a punchline than anything else. But the way they ran the entire city, it was just fascinating uh, all the way down literally to the street level. And so I wanted to write about the crime boss, Archie Doyle, who finds himself – suddenly challenged by times that are changing. And in this instance, it is the end of the Roaring Twenties in 1930 and the very beginning of the Great Depression. And even in the underworld, his empire is threatened. And it, he has to turn to this ex-boxer, Terry Quinn, who is seen as an enforcer and a, uh, a gun for hire to try to find out who's trying to tackle his empire. And it's very much a fish-out-of-water story. And I wanted to write the kind of story where you see someone you might not necessarily be rooting for because they all are criminals, but you still find yourself rooting for Terry Quinn to find out who's trying to destroy Doyle's empire. And in that, in doing that, I wanted to also put the reader in the same frame of mind that people who watched those gangster films way back in the 30s used to root for the bad guy because back then it was a uh, cultural phenomenon where they weren't rooting for the cops. They were rooting for Edward G. Robinson to get away. <laughs> and that's, that's right. And that's why I wanted the modern-day reader to read about that era and also maybe have a similar experience uh, that the audience did back then. So as you look back on your influences, uh, what, what do you see as your three favorite movies that help to crystallize some of the things that you may want to get across in your writing? 
Well, it's funny because, and thank God you told me about that question before because I had to write them down because I knew I would have <laughs> missed one and then I'd wake up at three in the morning and say, damn, I should have put that one in. Well, that's like me. I don't have any favorite movies anymore. I have scenes in movies that I like and uh, it's like free agents in baseball. I don't root for teams anymore. I root for players. It's a weird <laughs> thing that's weird things that's happened in our society. I know. I know. Well, for me, um, there's always like a top five movies, but then I know what would happen at three in the morning. I'd say, damn, I should have mentioned that one. <laughs> um, but for me, these three are pretty constant uh, in terms of movies uh, in no particular order. Uh, Inherit the Wind is a uh, fantastic movie that has some excellent dialogue and tackles the uh, huge topic in a courtroom setting that has two of the one, two of the best actors who've ever lived, uh, Spencer Tracy and Frederick March thundering away at each other. The whole movie's just fantastic. That one gave me a, a flair for the dramatic, which is what I tried to relate into my stories. The other one, from a visual perspective, The Searchers. Mm. Uh, John Wayne, John Ford, tell the story as much with the scenery and the incidentals that happen as much as they do with the dialogue and the plot. There are certainly parts of that movie that are imperfect, maybe a little long. Some of the humor does it falls flat now, but every single scene has so much packed into it. It's like a great painting. And also the themes, too, for 1956. It told a daring story, uh, especially for that era. And I'd say the third one, um, people who know my fiction probably won't be surprised by this one, but Miller's Crossing. Mm -hmm. Because of the dialogue, because of the way it looked, and because it tells a fantastic story, the problem is that some of the actors mumble and those details of the plot are lost in the actual delivery of the dialogue. Like you don't know who got killed or what happened to so-and-so. But on the fifth or sixth watching of the movie, you'll say, oh, yeah, now that's what happened to the person. So for me, I learned a lot about style and a lot about how to tell a story. But I also learned to make sure because of Miller's Crossing, you have to make sure your details are as crystal clear as possible or you're going to lose the audience. And it's very tough to get them back. Right. Well, and it sounds like that with a movie like Miller's Crossing, maybe that's the – the template for creating a cult, you're not quite sure what happens, so you have to go back and look at it a few times, and maybe maybe that works in the streaming world. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, you know what? It worked for the, the Coen brothers and the Big Lebowski, too. You know, right. that, talk about cults. God. Well, that movie's all over the place, but 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 boy, it's entertaining. Oh, I love it. That's <laughs> one of my favorites as well. So you get back to the theme of movies that you really enjoyed. What, what are the three books that you really uh, focus on that you enjoyed and either took something from in your own writing or just enjoyed for pleasure? purposes? Uh, the first one is Taipan uh, by James Clavell. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people remember him for Shogun, and that was a great miniseries. But in terms of books, for me, Taipan was the first one that I read in college on my own, and I couldn't put it down. It was a big book. But I found the different ways that Clavell introduced new characters, complex plot lines, decent amount of action, and all wrapped it up by the end. That really made me want to try my hand at writing. That was where I probably got the writing bug first for myself. Um, the second one is Cathedral by Nelson DeMille. Uh, Nelson DeMille's gone on to have a lot of great hits. This one was one of his earliest, and it tells a very confined story in a very short time frame in literally St. Patrick's Cathedral, but does so in such an entertaining way, action-packed, tense that uh, I also read that right after Taipan, and that helped me say, this is the kind of story I want to tell. So that's why it ranks number two on my list. And the third one is Bud Schilberg's The Harder They Fall. 
hmm. which is about a um, a boxing writer who gets disillusioned by the overall boxing world and life in general. And that, that was one of the few stories that I was reading that um, I missed my stop on my train because I was right at the end and I had to see how it ended. And the ending, I had a book hangover for days after that one. Um, the final scene in that was just fantastic. You got home all right. I got home. Yeah, I was going to work. So it was okay that I was a little bit late. Oh, even better. <laughs> better better use of time probably. So Sympathy for the Devil is coming out. Mm-hmm. That's going to be exciting. July 2015. Yes, it'll be available in all bookstores. Um, if they don't have it, they can order it, even including the independent bookstores. It'll also be available in ebook and uh, in any ebook format that you use. And what's your website? How do we find you? Uh, my website is www.terrencemacaulay.com. Uh, that's a tough one to spell. So it's uh, T E R R E N C E M C C A U L E Y dot com. And also um, the two books that Frazier mentioned earlier, Prohibition and Slow Burn are going to be available in ebook format uh, in uh, uh, June of next week. Oh, terrific. That's great. And having read Prohibition and Sympathy for the Devil, I can say that it's definitely worth a read. I really enjoyed them. Thank you. Appreciate it. What's next on the horizon? You can't finish a book and not have another one pop in your mind. Uh, what are you working on now or getting ready to work on? I've got a uh, Western that I'm looking to polish right now. Um, that one is going to be hopefully done by the uh, end of July. And then I have sequels to all the books that I just mentioned. Uh, the sequel to uh, Sympathy for the Devil is called A Murder of Crows. I can't explain it until you read the book. If you've read the book, you'll understand what uh, the title refers to. Uh, there's also a sequel to Prohibition called The Long Road Back. And there's also a sequel to Slow Burn, which is called The Fairfax Incident. Busy. Yeah, and that's just what I have now. I mean, I've got also some short stories that I owe Todd Robinson of Thuglet, and um, you know, I also have a couple of other stories coming out as well. Hopefully, I'll be able to announce them on my website soon. Well, Terrence, thank you very much for coming. This has just been a total pleasure. And uh, watching your career blossom from the initial book that I read, it's just just terrific. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And that concludes this episode of the Fraser Rice Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll be back with Episode 3 next month. If you're interested in reading my blog or would like to listen to previous podcast episodes, just visit FraserRice.com. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.